My uh, daughter was sharing with us last night. She's teaching in a, whoo, we buy some airplane landing lights, is that what we, holy cow, you're laughing at this, aren't you, you're loving this, yeah, yeah. the glare's going to kill them. So uh, she said, she's teaching a Christian school, kindergarten, and she, uh, so one of the kids in the class said, hey, Miss Osborne, I'm going to marry somebody who loves Jesus. So, of course, you know, oh, isn't that wonderful, great, yes, we certainly need to do that. And then this little girl said, hey, Miss Osborne, I'm going to marry somebody who will come watch me play soccer. <laughs> so it's good to know that the deep understanding of marital bliss is locked in that little girl. Now, with children, you never really have any idea what's coming. There are two beings in the universe, though, that the coming is always the same. You can expect the same thing with these two beings. One of them we still laugh at and we mock. We don't really sometimes believe exists. And yet Jesus had conversations with him and uh, they interacted. So you have God and Satan. Now Satan at one point was on his side, now he's not. And so you can be guaranteed that both those beings are going to do the same thing. Now when it comes to the enemy, and that's where we are in 2 Corinthians 11, we're walking through the book and we've come to a place, we're going to look at the first part of chapter 11 and he's going to share with us one of two strategies that Satan's going to employ in your life. Now, one of the strategies, obviously, once you become a part of the family of God, the enemy's going to come and do everything he can to wreck that. He's going to pull you away from Christ, pull you away from the Scripture. He's going to do everything he can to damage who you are. As a matter of fact, here's his agenda. Look in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And by the way, this is going to kind of be if, 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 if Paul were Trump. That's pretty much what he does here. He tweets pretty hard in this passage. He's sarcastic, but he's uh, not petulant. And listen to what he says. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now that's the enemy's job in your life. He's going to try to pull you away from being devoted to Christ. He's going to pull you away from Jesus being the center of your life and the head of your life. That's his agenda. He's going to do that in two ways. Number one, he's going to go after you and your family. And he's good. So he's going to come after you and your family. That's first agenda. The second agenda is the point of this entire book that we really run into here. The second thing you will come after is God's house where you go to worship. He would do everything he can to destroy the correct belief and truth in a church. Now the way he does that is what he does here. You cannot really damage a church from the seats. It's going to damage it from the leadership. You change a pastor out, change deacons out, committee members, elders... The leaders, he will plant in there certain people that will have the agenda of 2 Corinthians 11. So, he's going to go after two things all the time. You and whatever church you're thinking about joining or whatever church you're in. Now, 
Look at what he does. And actually, does it, does it work well? Look at uh, verse 4. Someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim. If you receive a different spirit from the one you received, you accept a different gospel, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So there are guys following them around. They're not pastors here. They're following them around. Wherever he's planted a church, they go. And the amazing thing is, right, these people had a year and a half with a guy that wrote 13 books in the New Testament. They had a year and a half with Paul. Surely, if anybody is grounded in what is correct about Jesus, you would think it's this church, and yet these guys have come in, and they're pulling them away. These super apostles. They're not pastors. They're pulling them away. Is it effective? Look down at verse 7. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you when I was with you and was in need. I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you, God knows I do. He says, and remember, he's a missionary. So he's going into places nobody's been. He's not going to take money. He's got churches like Antioch, and pretty soon he'll get this church to support him. But he's got Thessalonica, and he's got Philippi. They've sent him money, so he's coming into this area not taking any money. He says he's in need. He's staying at Motel 6. He's eating at Denny's. So he's struggling here. These guys come in, they waltz in, they're at the Four Seasons, eating at Ruth Chris Steakhouse, and they're just charging the people that they're supposed to be ministering to, and these people are going, no problem. They're buying the people that are ripping them off versus buying the man that's been a year and a half and never charged him a dime. So these people were effective even when they followed the Apostle Paul. So can they be effective? Absolutely. And here's the problem we face. We don't just face people coming in leadership. We don't just face a change out of pastors or staff or deacons or elders. What we face today in every church is now you have the influence of people on the internet. You have the influence of books. And don't think, do not assume that because you go to Lifeway Bookstore that the book's okay for years. Lifeway refused to take off the shelf even after a resolution I read into the record at the Southern Baptist Convention. They still refused to take off the shelf until this guy recanted a book about a five-year-old telling everybody what he saw when he went to heaven. So do not assume that because you're in Lifeway everything in there is legit. So we now face a battle, not only people coming in our own churches, we face a battle of the internet, we face a battle of TV, we face a battle of books where that influence can pull us away from a sincere devotion to Christ. Now, how do they do that? I mean, seriously, how do these guys that don't stay here come in? How do you take Paul for a year and a half, no money taken? For a year and a half, they were the greatest apostle of all time. These guys come in behind him, rip them off, take their money, 
teach them untruth, and the church is buying into them, not Paul. How in the world does that happen? How do we lose it that badly? Now, watch. Now, he's already mentioned this and alluded to this, but look in verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. The first thing are they speak better than Paul. I mean, Paul's a Jewish academic. There's a Christian academic society called the Evangelical Theological Society. These are all Christian academics, brilliant men, way out of my intellectual understanding. When these guys go to the Evangelical Theological Society, they stand, they open this 35-page uh, paper that they've written, and they read every page, and that's all they do. They occasionally look up and read every page. They are, the Greek word is boros. There's no other word. These guys are boring because they just read. Paul is a Jewish academic. He's not a great speaker. He says so. He says, I, I get it. I'm not a great speaker. But his content, as he said in the other chapter, pulls down strongholds, takes every thought captive to Christ, and alters who you are. The content, not the style. These guys come in, number one, they have a tremendous style that just blows the Apostle Paul out of the water. So they look better, they sound better, they're more clever. I don't think Satan ever had a boring preacher on his team. Unfortunately, that's not the case. There are some churches where you need a shirt that says, I endured the 11 o'clock worship hour. There are some places where it's just a tough deal. You're saying, well, preacher, <laughs> but at any rate, So number one, the style is rich and better. Now, but look at the second thing they do. Look in verse 12. What I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here's what happens. We're either going to have people move in here in leadership, or we're going to get it from the internet, or you're going to read a book by somebody, or you're going to go see somebody at a conference, and these people are going to do two things. They're going to look really good. You're going to hear them and go, wow, that person is great. The other thing is, now listen, they're going to look like us. But they're not. So, obviously, the question we have to ask is, how do we deal with that? I mean, they're obviously really good because you've got a year and a half with Paul and all of a sudden you're falling away. So how in the world do we handle these people? Particularly if they're better speakers than we are, more gifted, more winsome, more clever, and they smell like us, look like us, but as Paul says, they are not us. And their end, he says, is the judgment of God. So, how do we know? Look in verse 4 again. 
If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, if you receive a different spirit or accept a different gospel, you put it readily enough. So there's our agenda. We've got to know we're dealing with the right Jesus, the right role of the Holy Spirit, and the right gospel. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you one verse today. For those of you that are Baptists, what's our number one verse? John 3.16. I see something out going, I think it's John 3.16, but I'm afraid to say. Yes. That is the ultimate Baptist verse. God wrote it for us. John 3.16. Go with me there. Most of us should be able to quote it. First thing you generally learn in Bible school, listen to what it says. Now, listen, because we're going to take this sequence all the way across, and I'm going to show you how this works. For God so loved the world. There's our first thing. He loves us. He adores us. He is in love with us. And who does he love? The world. That is defined as in the scripture now listen to me carefully it is defined as a planet in rebellion against the God who loves it we're not victims we don't have a bad day we're not struggling we're not missing the mark listen we are in rebellion against the one who's in love with us when the Bible talks about us being worldly what's the idea behind that that we're doing things that do not reflect what he desires so when the Bible says he loves the world, the idea and the definition is that he's in love with a planet that is not in love with him and that is, as a matter of fact, in total rebellion against him. So there's a second thing we understand. We're not just a little flawed. We're broken and in rebellion against the one who is in love with us. Now look at this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave. That is, there's the God's grace. We didn't come to God and say, hey, we're bad, we're in rebellion, we want to change, please forgive us. We never went to him, he came to us, he gave. It is his grace. We don't do anything to earn it, we don't do anything to get it, his grace comes to us. So anybody that denies the grace is denying the gospel. Now look at this, he gave his only son. The Greek word in there is monogenes, literally means the only unique son. Jesus Christ, God gave, now listen. He is fully God and fully man. He gave him in absolute perfection. That unique son of God lived to age 33 and never, ever sinned. He died on that cross because he never sinned. And he took my mess and your mess and, and put it on his back. You say, well, how do you know it's his sin and not, I mean, our sin and not his? Because if you and I die today and we go into the ground, we're not coming out. He came out because he didn't die because of his fault. He died because it was our fault. So, he gave his only unique sin. The God-man who lived a perfect life and paid the penalty. Now listen. In his blood for us. Now look at this. That whoever believes in him. Now. You have to believe in him. You say, well, I do, preacher. No, 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 no. You can't believe because I tell you. You have to believe because the Holy Spirit tells you. 
Holy Spirit has to come to you and say he's who he says he is and then when you do that when you really believe it then you will know not just that it happened you will know that you need what he offers so belief is a response to the Holy Spirit not the response to me should not perish my destiny is changed but have eternal life now let me tell you what eternal life is it starts the minute that you become a believer it's not just that you feel good about yourself or you know God loves you eternal life is the ultimate end of life that will happen when I die in perfection and should begin to happen now is that I reflect in my life the glory of Almighty God I do that in two ways I experience his presence and I reflect his character. Those two things together, which will be perfect when I die, I'm in perfect fellowship with the Father, I will always reflect his character, and I therefore will show off his glory. So when he puts eternal life in me, how does he do those two things? He implants the Holy Spirit. Eternal life is the arrival of the Holy Spirit in me, who now, Bible says, makes alive my spirit, so I can hear him. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And now I have a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers me to live out his character. So, there it is. He loves me. I'm in rebellion. He offers me grace. He gives me his unique son who is the God-man, who's perfect, who pays the penalty for my sin. The Holy Spirit comes to me and speaks that truth to me. I yield to that truth. I believe that. When I do, the Holy Spirit now indwells me. I have the capacity to experience the Father, to reflect His character, and when I die, I win. There it is. That is how they get us. Because they say, what I just said but the content is not our content Mormons if you ask them do you believe God you bet does he love us you bet are we planted in a mess oh absolutely did Jesus die on the cross for our sins you bet Holy Spirit indwells, yeah. Do we have eternal life when we die? Absolutely. They'll answer yes to every one of those questions, which is why, by the way, 74% of Mormon churches are comprised of former Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterians. They don't win and lost people. They get us. Because they sound just like us. And they are, as he said, winsome. Mormons are nice people. They open the doors for you. They're nice. They don't drink any caffeine. Maybe that's a sin right there. But they're really great people. They're winsome. They're everything he says. And they answer the question just like we do. He asked one little question. You ask them, so, Jesus, who is he? 
Two answers. He's the half-brother of Satan. And number two, he's a product of Adam in time becoming a God, having intimacy with Mary. And Jesus is a product of that intimacy. They say what we say. They don't mean what we mean. And yet they take 74% of the people out of our churches because we get sucked into their niceness and that they smell the same and look the same and they are not. So we have to make sure that the content is correct. They're good. This is what's happening behind Paul. These guys are coming in behind Paul and they're saying everything that's said except they're adding one thing. They're coming into the Corinthian church and other churches following him and saying, look, yeah, the blood of Jesus is great, but you've got to be circumcised as well. And so these people, he says, are falling away from the sincere devotion to Christ. That's right, because now they're devoted back to the Old Testament law. Said all the right things and bring an absolute heresy. Now listen, we have to make sure that we stand on every correct definition of the gospel because the people we'll deal with will come in and address certain parts and wreck certain parts. I love charismatics, so don't misunderstand me today. But there are two types of charismatics. There are old charismatics and neo-charismatics. The old charismatics differed from us just in a few things, baptism, spirit, tongues, probably more emotional than we are. But the neo-charismatics, the Copelands, the Hagens, the Frederick Prices, are false prophets. I want you to listen to what Frederick K.C. Price, and he's all over the television. I want you to listen to what he says. Do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on a cross? If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. No. The punishment was to go into hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. Satan and all the demons of hell thought that they had him bound and they threw a net over Jesus and they dragged him down to the very pit of hell to serve his punishment copeland goes further when jesus cried it is finished he was not speaking of the plan of redemption there were still three days and nights to go through before he went to the throne jesus's death on the cross was only the beginning of the complete work of redemption now listen to me you never hear anything else i say you listen to me now when i die and I face a holy God. And my faith is in anything other than the blood on that cross. I'm not getting in. And whether you add to it or take away from it, it doesn't matter. You add to it, you say, no, wait a minute, the blood's great. But he had to spend three days in hell. 
No, 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 no. You're lost. You cannot be saved and believe anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Does the Bible say Jesus went to hell? Absolutely it does. It says it in Peter. So what did he do there? That's the beauty. There are two Greek words for preaching that are used throughout the New Testament. One is keruso, to basically proclaim. The other is euangelizomai, which is to preach the good news, the gospel. The definition here in 2 Corinthians 11 and in John 3, 16. Jesus, both terms are used of Jesus when he went to hell. He preached the gospel to the spirits in prison. They didn't beat him up. Satan didn't bind him. Satan was done. When Jesus said it's finished, it was He went to hell to preach to the people who died in the days of Noah who had no shot. And we don't know their response. But the Bible says in the Greek that he preached the gospel. Let me tell you something. There is no gospel without the resurrection. So he didn't go between the three days. He went after the three days because he has no gospel without coming out of the grave. He was not tortured in hell. He was not beat up. His blood on the cross is the only efficacious atonement you have in the world. Thank you. Now, <laughs> sorry, just the Spirit of God moved in me. Now, I want you to listen to another thing Ken Copeland said. This is amazing to me. The Spirit of God spoke to me and he said, Son, realize this. Now follow me in this and don't let your tradition trip you up. He said, Think this way. A twice-born man whipped Satan in his own domain. And I threw my Bible down. There's your first problem. I said, What? He said, A born-again man defeated Satan. The firstborn and many brethren defeated him. He said, You are the very image, the very copy of that one. I said, goodness gracious sakes alive, and began to see what had gone on in there. And I said, well, now you don't mean, you couldn't dare mean that I could have done the same thing. He said, oh, yeah. If you'd had the knowledge of the word of God that he did, you could have done the same thing because you're a reborn man too. There's not a man that's ever been born on this planet that could do what Jesus did. Nobody. Anybody that tells you that the only difference between him and Jesus is that he didn't know what Jesus knew. And now that he knows what Jesus knew, he could have died on the cross for you as absolute blasphemy. These guys, though, pretty effective. It's he and uh, Duplantis, who are the ones that argue about praying on a $65 million jet. Copeland was under indictment because of the number of homes and unbelievably rich living that he does. These guys are pouring in money. It's not atheists giving it to him. It's not agnostics. It's believers. Because they look good. I mean, I'm telling you, my favorite comedian in the world is Jesse DePlantis. He's way better than Seinfeld or Jimmy Fallon. He's hysterical. When I watch DePlantis preach, and I love him, here's what he does. He gets up. He reads a sentence that I'm pretty sure he doesn't understand. Because it makes sense, and it's erudite. Never reads the Bible, just reads a sentence. And then he gets out and does like a five-minute funny monologue. Then he comes back and reads another sentence. What was that line in Princess Bride? I don't think you 
that word means what you think it means. That's Jesse. But he's funny. He's good looking, big white teeth, full head of hair. Looks like Ron Blatchley, as a matter of fact, right here. I thought it was Jesse first Sunday Ron visited. I mean, he's just that way. He is winsome, he's funny, he's clever, but he, if you believe what he says, will put you in the pits of hell for eternity. So we have to be clear that this church stays firm on the absolute tenets of the gospel and the role of the Holy Spirit and grace and rebellion and love and future destiny in alone the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful of that. There's a uh, really well-known preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, who has recently come out. He's really gifted. He's good-looking, really good speaker. But he has said that we've got to quit talking about the Bible being true. That what we do is we just tell the stories in the Bible and then we let people come to whether or not the Bible's true. Let me be clear. If this story of Jesus dying on the cross were in any other book than this, I'm not buying it. We can't ever leave the absolute integrity and inerrancy of this book. If it's embedded in this book, it's legit. Anything else, it's not. My only hope, and the only reason I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I wasn't there. I didn't see him crucified. I didn't go into the tomb. I didn't see the grave cloths wrapped, still rolled, different spots. I didn't see anything empty. I didn't see him when he went back to heaven. I didn't see him after the resurrection. I never saw that. The only reason I know it's true is I heard it from this book, and the Holy Spirit confirmed it in my heart, and my belief changed my life. And that's it. Anything else, we have to make sure that when people say the words we say, they mean what we mean. You say, why is it really that big a deal? Because of this verse. Listen. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10, 31. Now listen. We've got a whole Brazos Valley that's headed there. They don't know they're headed there. They don't have any idea. We, though, know they are, and we know the answer. We better be real clear. God loves them. They're in rebellion. But God gave a unique son, the God-man, who was perfect and paid the penalty in nothing other than his blood. And if I allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me and I hear what he says about that and I believe it, then my destiny is all through the Holy Spirit implants in me and now I have the capacity to know him and reflect his character. And there isn't anything in the universe better than that truth. And we're the only ones that know it. So we are responsible to share it. Let's pray. Father, We are grateful because we're here today because you spoke to us about this. You believed it. You've altered who we are. So, Father, I just ask you two things today. Let us stay in your truth. 
and let us share that accurately so your spirit can move with a community that has no idea what they're missing. Drive that into this room. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You never met Christ. Steph and I are here. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship. Or you just need to come and pray. We're here. Glad to pray with you. As the Holy Spirit speaks to you this morning. You come.